listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome back. It's Ohio V the World, and this is episode 11, Ohio versus the Confederacy. Today we're going to be talking about the Civil War, and we're going to be talking about the summer of 1863, the same summer as Gettysburg and Vicksburg. We're going to be talking about July 1863, when the Civil War comes to Ohio. Battles are fought, a southern invasion of Cincinnati, southern, southeastern Ohio, all the way up into northeastern Ohio. Today we'll tell the story of Morgan's raid, General John Hunt Morgan a Confederate cavalry general who leads nearly 2,500 troops on a 14-day raid of the Buckeye State, causing terror, death, destruction, some incredible stories left behind in those two weeks in Ohio when the Civil War came home. The Civil War, this, this event was 154 years ago this summer. Uh, as we record here, the end of June, early July, we're almost exactly 154 years since Morgan's raid terrorized Ohio citizens, since the Battle of Buffington Island and the Battle of Selenville, the two actual battles fought on Ohio soil during the Great War. It's this story of Morgan's raid into Ohio in 1863 that made me want to start the podcast. It's one of those stories that not enough people know. Um, that's a, just incredible, incredible moments here in the Buckeye State um, that need to be shared, that people need to know about. Um, and we're going to talk today to maybe the person in the state who knows more about the raid, Morgan's raid, than anyone else. Today's guest will be David Mowry, the author of Morgan's Great Raid. It's a 2013 book uh, brought to you by the History Press, um, where he meticulously researches maps and tells the stories of that July 1863 raid through the Buckeye State. David was nice enough to dedicate, uh, oh gosh, probably two hours of his time talking with me. Um, we had a conference room down in Cincinnati, uh, a client of mine's conference room at a hotel, um, and we just couldn't stop talking about it. I just had so many questions. Um, and just to talk to somebody who knows so much about a topic I'm so interested in was awesome. So you'll hear from David throughout the episode. I'll try and stay out of the way as much as I can. But we're talking about the Civil War, and you'll hear us talk a lot about this story is told really through the story of the Raiders. As much as we'll tell the stories of those brave Ohioans and the Union Army who tries to track them down and ultimately capture Morgan, but we're also going to be looking at the bravery shown by the Confederate soldiers. And this might not jive well in today's society, but the Civil War is probably the most interesting thing that happened in American history. The Confederate Army has probably fought for maybe the worst cause of any army since the Nazis. 
at no point in the story do I want you to think that we're rooting for the Confederate Army. You might end up feeling that way at certain times during the story, rooting for Morgan. But it's clear, I shouldn't even have to give a disclaimer like this, that the Confederate Army's goal to continue slavery, to leave our country, was, was traitorous. And it's nothing more than that. It, it is the ultimate Benedict Arnold move by an entire section of the country and its politicians. But we're talking about the people that were involved in it. And we're a history podcast, so we don't really have the luxury of being anti-history on this show. And we won't be. We want to talk about the Civil War. The war between the states is probably my favorite time in history. My favorite time period in American history to read about, for sure. Um, There's thousands and thousands of books about Abraham Lincoln. But there's only a couple books about Morgan's Raid. And so we really, really suggest that you go. Um, I was just at the History Connection. You can find it at the State House uh, Museum. You can find David Mowry's book, Morgan's Great Raid. Uh, I suggest you get it on Amazon. There's a paperback version. Um, really wasn't very, it was just a few bucks. Uh, got it delivered to my door. I read it, and I was so glad that he was willing to, to sit down and talk about it uh, and share his vast knowledge of those events in July of 1863. Our beer for today's episode, um, we're going to be spending a lot of time at the Battle of Buffington Island, um, which is in southeast Ohio along the river. And so we're going to have what I deem to be the best beer in southeast Ohio, and that is Jackie O's down in Athens. Um, It's located on Union Street, 24 Union Street, right on the strip. Uh, I've been going to that bar for years, and it's a brew pub as well. They make incredible beer, JackieO's.com. Check them out. If you're ever in southeast Ohio, you have to stop there and get lunch and try some of their beers. The beer that I'm having today um, is one of my favorites. It's Jackie O's Mystic Mama. It's a, just a canned IPA, 7% alcohol. Um, it is just, it's one of the best. Uh, it's one of Ohio's, my favorite Ohio beers. Um, and anytime I'm down in Athens, I usually take a little bike trip down there, ride from Nelsonville to, Ath- to Athens, and I go have lunch and a couple of beers at, at Jackie O's before I ride back. Um, but that's where we'll be. We'll be all over southern Ohio, and again, from Cincinnati all the way along the river. Um, Morgan's Raiders come very close to Athens. They actually do uh, invade cities like Jackson and cities like Nelsonville, um, very near the home of Ohio University. This will be one of the longest, if not the longest, behind enemy lines raids in American military history. Captain, or, I'm sorry, General John Hunt Morgan and his Raiders and their trip through Ohio and how they're finally stopped by the Union Army at a place called Buffington Island, and finally at the Battle of Selineville, where Morgan will end up getting captured. But his story doesn't end there where he gets captured. I think maybe the, the coolest, most interesting things happen after Morgan is captured um, at the end of July of 1863. So fire it up. We're going to be playing all kinds of old-timey Civil War songs. Um, so break out the banjos. And we're going to be looking at when the Civil War comes home to the Buckeye State. It's episode 11, Ohio versus the Confederacy.
the summer of 1863, the Union is probably at maybe its lowest point in the entire war. Lee has destroyed the Army of the Potomac at Chancellorsville in, in May. The war seems to have no end. Lincoln cannot find a general who can beat Lee, although they are winning many victories out in the West where we will focus on uh, our story today. The public at large is seeing giant casualty numbers, and they're not seeing Union victories. Peace Democrats and people called Copperheads that we'll talk about are calling for change. They're calling for peace. They're calling for two separate nations, the United States of America and the Confederate States of America, to coexist, to end the bloodshed. Gettysburg takes place July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd in, in the, just the heartland of, of Pennsylvania. Lee's army has made it that far north. But the story today of, of John Hunt Morgan's raid, the same month, only weeks after Gettysburg, is actually goes even further north than Lee's army. Morgan, who will cross over the Ohio River, or cross over the border into Ohio, on July 13th around noon, his raid will continue until July 27th. And it'll end just 20, 25 miles south of Youngstown. It'll end only 90, 80 miles, I should say, south of Cleveland. It reaches northeast Ohio. It gets to Columbiana County, just one county south of Mahoning. John Hunt Morgan was a famous cavalry leader even before this raid. His raids into Kentucky in 1862 had produced pretty incredible results. Kentucky changing hands between the Confederacy and, and the Union armies um, and their governments changing hands throughout 1862 and into 1863. Morgan leads a, a cavalry brigade, a cavalry army in Tennessee, and he's under the, the, uh, the generalship of General Braxton Bragg. Bragg's in a tough situation. The Army of the Ohio, which is forming in the Louisville and Cincinnati area under uh, General Ambrose B. Burnside, is looking to come down from the north, Bragg's army around Nashville. And they're already in, in, in a tough situation battling the Army of, of the Cumberland, um, the Army of the Tennessee, in, in, in the Western theater, in losing ground. They give up significant numbers. And this is what causes Morgan's raid. We ask our guest, David Mowry, to talk about the situation um, of why Morgan's raid needed to happen, why General Braxton Bragg and the Confederate generals decided to give Morgan this much leeway to lead a, a, a raid all the way into the north. Um, to go deeper into what you said, what was the, the goal of, of the raid? Well, essentially, Bragg was very afraid that Burnside's new formed Army of the Ohio, as it would be called, would um, attack Cumberland Gap and take East Tennessee. And by doing so, outflank Bragg's army at Nashville and force it out of Tennessee. And he understood that eventually Burnside's army would do this, that they would enter Cumberland Gap and would probably take out the Confederate defense there under uh, Brigadier General Simon Bolivar Buckner. 
there was really no resistance the Confederacy could offer to keep that army out of East Tennessee. Due to the size of the Army of the Ohio and, and the limitations of, of Bragg's army and, and Bolivar Buckner's army. That's correct. And so the goal of the raid was really to divert the attention of Burnside's forming army away from Cumberland Gap. Uh, if possible, even divert some of Rosecrans's cavalry away from Nashville and take it into Kentucky. John Hunt Morgan was from Lexington, Kentucky. There's still a statue of him right by the courthouse. Um, we'll put a picture of it up. I know that statues are getting torn down left and right. We're not going to get into that, um, into that issue here today. But his, his statue in Lexington still stands. Morgan gets the go-ahead from Bragg to try and draw forces away from Nashville um, and to go after the infrastructure in the railways, in the, in the transportation, and just cause general disruption in the North to try and get people, uh, whether it's the Army of the Ohio or people from Tennessee, Union armies from Tennessee, to chase him, to give Bragg some time to figure out a way to, to continue to hold his territory in western Tennessee. But at no time did Bragg or his generals give General Morgan the go-ahead to race into Ohio. They didn't even give him the go-ahead to go into Indiana, which he will do before he goes into Ohio, um, and where major fighting also took place in southern Indiana. We asked David Mowry, when, when did he decide this? Why did he keep it from the other generals, uh, especially Braxton Bragg, and when did he decide to do that? So when did he actually decide to invade Ohio? Because that was not part of the original plan with, with uh, Braxton General Bragg, is that correct? That's correct. In fact, Braxton Bragg had ordered Morgan, after a conference with him, to stay within Kentucky, mainly because Bragg was first a very cautious commander, sometimes overcautious, and his men did not like him for that, and neither did Morgan. Um, the other reason for it was, militarily, Morgan uh, was a cavalryman, and his job was not to, um, to, to, to raid enemy country that deeply, but rather to be prepared to, to prevent outflanking of enemy armies and to do picket duty. That was what West Point taught these generals to do with cavalry. So Bragg's primary intent for Morgan was to do that type of duty, prevent, prevent outflanking by the enemy and to to picket duty. So he had to stay within range of Nashville in order to do that. If, and in case Bragg needed him back. And he would soon because the famous Tullahoma campaign of, eight, of June of 64 would soon begin uh, where Rosecrans would advance on Bragg's army from Nashville toward the Duck River. So it, Bragg knew this was going to happen, but he didn't know when. So he wanted Morgan to be within range. Therefore, he ordered Morgan not to cross the Ohio River. Um, he didn't say it in words, though. We don't have any written orders saying that. We only have the fact that after Morgan entered Ohio in Indiana, that Bragg said, I didn't authorize this. That's all we know. So that's, that's where we see Bragg saying Morgan should not have crossed the Ohio River. So he did not share his intentions to cross the Ohio with with General Bragg? Absolutely not. In fact, one would say, according to the history of Morgan's cavalry, written by Basil Duke, who was Morgan's second in command, 
Uh, Basil Duke said that Morgan had his mind fixed on crossing the Ohio River as early as March of 1863. Wow. And that's when the first first discussion of a raid on Louisville had begun and that Morgan was considered for that raid. So the raid itself did not begin until officially July 2nd of 1863. So several months earlier, Morgan already had his mind made up that he was going to make Indiana, Ohio a target of his raid. The Union Army tasked with, with general, being the general of the Army of Ohio was Ambrose Burnside. He had once controlled the Army of the Potomac. He had failed. He had been taken out of that position by Lincoln. Um, and he was now stationed in Cincinnati with a force of 80, 90, 100,000 men in militia, planning to make war again in the South and to force the Confederates out of Tennessee and to crush the army of Braxton Bragg. We had to ask because Ambrose Burnside had giant sideburns. Um, and it seems kind of a coincidence. Was Burnside, we asked David Mowry, was Burnside the cause uh, of the term sideburns that we use now? Now, this is, Burnside's sideburns are named after General Burnside. Is, is, can you, <laughs> yes. can you, is this for sure? Yeah, that's true. Um, Burnside was actually um, famous even at his time for his fluffy sideburns. Yeah, they're huge. Um, at that time, they didn't have a name for those. Um, however, uh, his, his fame uh, gave us the lexicon we have today, sideburns. It actually started in the English language as Burnsides, but it sounded bad. And so <laughs> Americans change it around as they do a lot of words and became sideburns. Morgan begins his raid on June 11th. He begins moving north in Tennessee and crosses the Cumberland River on July 2nd. The Cumberland River almost being the, the dividing line between north and south at this point. He captures a federal garrison at Lebanon, and he continues moving north towards the city of Louisville. It's not known how many troops he has. It's known to be thousands. Um, as David told us, he starts with about 20, 2,460 men. Morgan scatters his troops, differing reports. He sends some up north, even above Louisville. Um, there's some seen east. Um, a lot of those men are captured, ultimately. Um, but it's this idea of, of confusion, and it's this idea of what David Mowry calls special operations. We're all used to special ops now, the Navy SEALs and all these different Army Rangers and things uh, that we consider to be special ops now. But General Morgan and his Raiders were the, kind of the original special ops crew. We asked David Mowry, it seems kind of crazy that an Army in 1863 can practice special ops. But it does. Well, special ops was not invented in the Civil War. It had been in, in existence since biblical times. Essentially, a special ops mission is one that's done behind enemy lines. Um, it's done for the purpose of destroying infrastructure rather than attacking armies. So that's the primary goal is destroy infrastructure and, and also to accomplish a mission that may not decide the outcome of a war but rather help in the outcome of war. And that's very important. Um, much of what we're doing over in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan today is special ops missions where we are attacking infrastructure of, of 
either al-Qaeda or ISIS. And that's really what Morgan did. He, his men were trained to attack infrastructure and do that behind enemy lines, which would in turn force um, whatever he destroyed to be minimized at the front. For example, if he destroyed railroads or railroad bridges, it would hinder the ability to take either reinforcements or supplies from rear rear guard uh, locations like Louisville, for example. Which is something he does all along the trails to store, destroy railroads. Yeah, ever since 1861 when his men formed as a company, Company A, the 2nd Kentucky Cavalry, they always concentrated on destroying infrastructure. That was their job from the very beginning, and that's what they were best at. Morgan continues through Indiana and has a battle at a place called Corridon, uh, where he loses over 50 men, killed and wounded. And he moves east and decides to cross into the state of Ohio. And it was here at noon on July 13th at Harrison, Ohio, Harrison north of Cincinnati, about 20 miles northwest of Cincinnati, they cross into Ohio, and the city of Cincinnati is sent into a panic. Morgan's men have reached the Buckeye State, and the war has come to one of the largest cities in the Union, Cincinnati, Ohio. Well, the Department of Ohio headquarters is Cincinnati. It was located on 4th Street, in fact, in downtown Cincinnati, and Burnside had his personal headquarters on 9th Street, where the public library is downtown. And uh, Burnside is barely 27 miles away from Harrison, direct line. Um, and it's connected by a major road called the Harrison Turnpike, which goes straight downtown. Um, and it's noon on July 13th when Morgan arrives at Harrison, crosses the border from Indiana. On his tail are roughly 65,000 Indiana militia and, and regular troops converging on Harrison. Now, in, in Ohio and Cincinnati, already waiting for him at that point in time were 10,000 militia that had been raised by Governor David Todd. Um, for about 1,000, close to 1,500 of those were positioned in Hamilton, Ohio. Um, another 9,000 down in downtown Cincinnati when Morgan arrives in Harrison. And in fact, when Morgan leaves Harrison uh, about three hours later on July 13th, uh, Hobson's troops, his advanced troops, arrive at the Whitewater River Bridge just as the last of Morgan's troops are leaving. So they are literally within minutes of each other. Morgan burns the bridge at Whitewater River and prevents those troops from crossing easily. That's a pretty classic Morgan move to burn the bridge. Yes. <laughs> As his men go around Cincinnati to the north, they begin what's known as the longest night, according to one of his raiders. Morgan's men began one of the longest cavalry rides in Army history. We wonder, well, how, did these, how did Burnside and Hobson and these different uh, 
Union commanders, how did they not just track this guy down? They had 90,000, 100,000 soldiers and militia and, and in the Buckeye State, yet this guy's roaming free. And it's a, a raid like this that kind of sets him apart and keeps him ahead of the pack. They don't know where he is. They ride at night. Um, but for a day and a half, Morgan's men through Indiana and Ohio, they ride east. They terrorize cities along the way, eating off the land, foraging. And we asked David Mowry about this famous ride of Morgan's raiders. I know a lot of people ask, how can a 25-person army, a 2,500-person army, roam around Ohio and not be you know, caught almost immediately and outnumbered? Um, describe that ride and, and how he kind of, you know, this is why he wasn't captured right away. That's a great, uh, great question, actually, and probably one that historians still answer, ask today, and that's why they study Morgan's Great Raid. Um, essentially, what happened was that Morgan uh, had about 2,000 men by that time he entered Harrison, because with all the battles and skirmishes in Kentucky and Indiana, and with the sheer exhaustion of his men, he had lost about 460 of his men due to battle casualties and exhaustion. Uh, so he entered Ohio with 2,000 men, and he's facing, if you add up all the numbers, um, you know, he's, he's facing nearly um, 90,000 men um, and more to come. So he decides, because Cincinnati is the seventh largest city in the United States at the time, according to the 1860 census, and is the largest northern city west of the Appalachian Mountains, which is mo most people would be surprised today that Cincinnati was that. Oh, much bigger in Chicago, certainly, and you know, I guess St. Louis would be another city that would be in the running. Indianapolis, but Cincinnati was that was a huge city, yes. especially in the 1860s, and therefore provided a, a large portion of the militia. And so Morgan understood that he did not intend to attack Cincinnati. He did not intend to attack Hamilton, Ohio. His intent was to go through the, the two, between the two cities, and he had to evade them by a special march. He would do a night march known as the Great Ride, and that Great Ride started in Sunman, Indiana um, at 5 in the morning on July 13th, and it would end at Williamsburg, Ohio, which is in Claremont County, um, 85 miles later, 35 hours later. And that ride, even today, is the longest continuous cavalry ride by a mounted horseman in American history uh, when it was done in, in enemy territory. Um, you can imagine uh, horsemen were able to move that fast in, in territory that is friendly, but this is enemy territory where every corner could host a regiment of enemy infantry. That Jackie is, is good stuff. One of my favorite stories that I didn't know until I read David's book, I'd never heard of this guy, a man named George Lightning Ellsworth. Morgan's raid can be credited with really one of the first cyber warfare campaigns. Electronic warfare it would be called. Um, he is a, he's a pioneer in this. It's another way that Morgan keeps the Union's massive armies, its tens of thousands of armed men, off his set, they don't know exactly where he's at. And it's all thanks to one man, George Lightning Ellsworth. We asked David Mowry about this uh, 
about this famous soldier in Morgan's Brigades? You know, we talk about um, you know ways that that Morgan is able to continue the raid to keep these ninety thousand or so armed Union soldiers and, and militiamen away from him. One of the most important ways, and I think, one of the first you call it one of the first examples of electronic warfare. Um, tell us the story that his telegraph, uh, his telegraph artist, his telegrapher, or whatever you call it, uh, Lightning Ellsworth. How does he help Morgan on this raid? I love this story, but this guy is incredible. George Lightning Ellsworth. He is from Canada, and he was trained by Samuel B. Morris himself as a telegrapher. He joined Morgan's Raiders early in the war, around 1862, uh, as a private in Morgan's uh, 2nd Kentucky Cavalry, Um, but he was a terrible soldier. He was an older gentleman at the time, but he was a terrible soldier, and Morgan didn't want him, though, as a soldier. He wanted him for his, his ability to use the telegraph which turned out to be a blessing in disguise because... He's, he's almost like a, like a 19th century hacker, you know? Absolutely. In fact, I would say George Lightning Ellsworth was beyond a typical telegrapher because of his natural ability to learn a fist. And for those who don't know the term fist, it's the tapping rhythm that a telegrapher has when they tap out a message to another telegrapher. And that tapping rhythm is unique to each individual. And... Other telegraphers on the line recognize the tapping rhythm as, say, oh, that's John's tapping rhythm, or that's that's Bill's tapping rhythm. And they can also understand when there's a, uh, an imposter on the line or a newbie on the line by the tapping rhythm. But George Lightning Osworth not only was a great telegrapher and could tap into to enemy lines and, and hear the telegraph, telegraph messages going by and, and write them down for General Morgan, but he also had the ability to sit down for only a couple minutes next to a Union te- telegraph officer and listen to their telegraph uh, tapping fist or fist and learn it by heart and then shove away the officer from, from the seat. He would take over and replicate that fist. And now Morgan's telegraphing Burnside's office about what what's going on with the raid and it's all it's all bs that's correct it's yeah. all it's all false information yeah morgan's heading up to columbus morgan's sending men up towards dayton or, he, kind of. or he has ten thousand men instead of two thousand so it really threw off burnside and his officers because they were getting conflicting messages from their telegraph stations about where morgan was how many men he had and what his direction was Morgan's men are traveling through southern Ohio. And they're chaining out horses. They're going to people's houses. They're running through the town square, taking goods from stores. Food and horses are their main items. They have to have. They can't go without them. And there were some battles. People were killed. Um, People who either shot at them, people who... Um, for lack of a better term, talk smack to Morgan's men. This happens throughout Ohio. Although Southern Ohio was known for its copperhead leanings, its Southern sympathies in some, in some aspects, the majority, the vast majority of people supported the Union Army. The vast majority of people obviously did not want their homes invaded. We talk with, with David Mowry about some of those 
more violent encounters that they had with Ohio citizens. When the terror came home, the terror of the Civil War came home to Ohio. There were cases where they did harm um, uh, men, uh, Union men, uh, who may not have been uh, armed. Um, a couple of those cases happened in Ohio, in fact. At the, the ones that are most famous are the Jasper incident with um, McDougal, uh, who really got himself into trouble because he just constantly swore four-letter words at, the, at the southern, his southern captors. And he wouldn't let it go. And then when they asked, Confederates asked for a ford of the Scioto River down at Jasper, no one would give it up. And so they, they asked McDoodle to give it up. Where's the ford? He refused. It just set him off, and the Confederates shot him dead down there. In, fr- in front of citizens? Um, yes. Uh, they were Supposedly he was in a boat when he, he was tied up in a boat, and they shot him dead in the boat. Um, and let him float down the, the Scioto River. It did happen several other times in Indiana and Ohio where that happened. Um, another famous one happened outside of Pomeroy um, where two men were shot dead. One, again, was swearing four little words right and left. They told him to shut up. He wouldn't shut up. He got shot, and the doctor accidentally got shot trying to help him. He kind of stepped in front, and the bullet hit him and killed him. Um, and in some of the other instances, I mean, they come across the property and the Morgan's men are shot at. Yes. Um, and in any case like that, they were allowed to return fire and, and almost certainly did. Correct. Uh, the rules of war allowed for Morgan's men to return fire on snipers, and there were plenty of them in Indiana and Ohio. Uh, the one that caused the most ruckus in newspapers was a sniper and his and his son down at, uh, near Cordon, Indiana, um, that one, they actually burned down the house, too, which is one of the rare occasions when a private dwelling was burned. Jasper is another. And Jasper, the fire was set to non-civilian places, mainly the mills, but the fire spread to civilian houses and burnt down the civilian houses. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to give our listeners the false impression that they were, you know, tipping their cap and, and you know, saying yes, sir, no, sir, to the, to the northerners, but... Overall, I think the terror that people had when they came into town, many were, like you said, surprised by how civil they were in their, in their raid. That is correct. And we have actual written letters that prove that. It's not something we're, we're Revi- stating. It's not a revisionist history. That's correct. It's not revisionist. Uh, in fact, we have a very good letter from a perfect person who would be in the stance to say, I'm in the middle of all this. I don't want to be on either side. And that's where the white wa- – the, that was a letter written by an elder – uh, in the um, Whitewater Shaker Society outside of Cincinnati, when both Union and Confederate soldiers visited their community and, and wanted forage. Um, and it turned out that the Confederates who visited the Shaker Society treated them be- better than the Union soldiers who visited later on. And the Shakers being pacifists who were actually exempt most of the time from, from conscription, correct? Yes, yeah, so they had they had that um, non-biased view of the raid, which was very important for us because as historians, we want to get a non-biased view of the raid. Morgan's men, although there's some stories about them being real tough and real violent, on the whole, Morgan ran a tight ship, and his men were not allowed to do some of the things that you might fear was done to Ohioans. 
women were not to be touched. They were supposed to act like gentlemen on this, on this raid. And for the most part, they really did. It's surprising to me that a southern army who has basically no wagon train, no food, is living off the land and the people here in Ohio. They're not nearly as nasty as we might think they would. They might have smelled horrible. They might have looked terrible with their beards and dirty and they're riding you know, on their horses 20 hours a day. But there's few cases of sexual assault. David says none that he can report. The pillaging was, was meant to be done as much to you know, minimize the damage um, to the northerners. But also, they had, there's some things they had to do. They couldn't ride horses for more than you know, seven, several hours a day. Um, but we asked him about this idea that, that they were just that rapers and pillagers um, in their two-week you know, journey through Ohio. When you're stealing goods, you have to stop, knock on the door, and they're very, they're very formal about it as they steal, steal from the citizens because they're southern gentlemen. Their, their commander insisted on that, so they aren't barging into the houses willy-nilly unless yeah, they're abandoned. Of, a lot of the stuff I read, I mean, they were nicer than you would think about, about a raid. I mean, this idea of raping and pillaging... Uh, you know, I didn't find many examples of, of sexual assault or something. It's something that Morgan would not stand for. And I know that he punished, executed, did whatever he had to do to the soldiers that he found guilty of that stuff. Uh, with regard to uh, to raping and molesting of citizens, that is definitely the case. Um, he was more lenient about the pillaging aspect <laughs> because he— Pro-pillage. Right. Yeah. Um, he allowed that um, and got him into trouble sometimes, especially in 1864, a year after this raid. It really got him into trouble. But um, the pillaging was less of a problem because it was just goods. What he really was very strict about with his men was you don't harm women, you don't harm ch- children, you leave them alone, um, even if they resist— do not harm them. Don't which touch they, them. Which they do. That's right. And in fact, there are no documented instances of either occurrence happening. Um, in fact, there are a lot of newspaper articles written only days after the raid, where the, even the newspaper uh, editors and and reporters indicate uh, we were surprised that nothing of that nature happened, um, and that they went on and took our horses and they took our food and items and our property but they didn't harm any of our women and children i think that really surprised a lot of unionists because they had heard the negative propaganda about the confederacy through their newspapers for many years up to leading up to 1863 and when suddenly they had a confederate soldier at their doorstep they realized that these men were just like their boys in blue down south they really didn't mean to to harm any of the civilians Um, If they didn't have to. If they didn't have to. A lot of times I'd put myself in the shoes of these Ohioans. When you see men on horseback, infantry soldiers wearing the gray uniforms, walk onto your property, the dread you must have felt, the stories that you've heard. 
Are they going to take my children? Are they going to take everything that we own? Are they going to kill us? That terror of a foreign army landing on, on your soil as a, as a farmer, or you live in a town in, in southwestern, southern, um, even later in northeast Ohio. A lot of people had a little bit of warning that Morgan's men were coming. The newspapers were following them. Um, rumors spread like wildfire throughout the south, uh, throughout southern Ohio about Morgan's raid. And you knew when it was a couple of towns over. But people start, did some pretty innovative things to hide their horses and their valuables. Um, and in one case, they even hit a couple of African-American sl runaway slaves. Uh, hit them under the floorboards in a house in southern Ohio. Um, another family had hid their two horses in the house along with some of their other valuables. They put up sheets at the door and throughout the house over all the rooms and said that someone there had, I can't remember if it was typhoid or whatever it was, a, just a dangerously communicative di disease. And that all these sheets were up in the house and we have sick people here um, and you really shouldn't come in. And they said, well, do you mind if we come in? And they said, it's just not safe. We really don't think you should. And the Union soldiers went away. Or another time in David's book, he outlines a family that hid all their silver up in their fireplace, um, in the chimney almost, uh, above the fireplace. And Morgan's men show up, and they need food, and they're not leaving. And they have to cook the food. They didn't have, you know, stovetops and those kinds of things. A lot of the food was kicked, you know, was cooked in the fireplace. Um, and sure enough, Morgan's men show up, and they've hidden all their valuables inside, inside the, in the fireplace, and now they're having to cook a giant meal. Um, and luckily, they cooked it just fast enough, you know, in, in David's book, that, that all their silver wasn't burned. Um, but we asked David just about that knock on the door. And what happened to Ohioans? All this stuff, crazy to think about, the way that we're able to track it, and historians like David Mowry were able to track what happened, is after the war and after the raid, it took decades in some cases to get it paid back, but you could send the state of Ohio a bill for your stolen horses, for your stolen silverware, for your food. Um, and in many cases, all of that stuff was paid back later by the state. Uh, we asked David just about the terror the normal citizen felt on this raid. There were plenty of interesting approaches to protecting their property. Um, some citizens buried their silver and their valuables in their gardens or in their fields, especially a newly plowed field. It would be hard to find. Um, sometimes they would bury it in the, in the woods. They put it somewhere under the floorboards of their house, um, even into their their outhouses, you know, wherever they could find a place for it. But Morgan's men got were so used to finding these things in those type of places, they were very used to finding them in, as they went into Ohio especially, that they were able to find them without they knew much the, trouble. They knew the usual hiding spots. Yeah, they knew the usual hiding spots indeed. And that, that was uh, to Ohio, Ohioans detriment, I believe. Um, nonetheless, some of, sometimes it worked, um, it, especially if they were in rural areas that were very rugged. Uh, horses being 
hidden in the woods far away from the barn. Um, often Morgan's men were tired and they didn't feel like traversing mountains or hills to go find horses um, unless they were desperate. So sometimes it worked, many times it didn't. Um, it would be a treasure trove for a Confederate to find horses all tied up to a single tree in the woods, and they often found them by finding the tracks in the ground, and, and that led them to the horses or to whatever valuables. But it wasn't all just terror and victimization on this raid. Uh, one of my favorite stories is, is a love story that comes out of Morgan's raid between an Ohio woman and one of the raiders. We asked David about this story. Um, that always put a smile on my face. You tell a story about a great love story that happened on Morgan's Raid. Tell us about, about the story of uh, John Anderson. Oh, yes. John Anderson, 2nd Kentucky Cavalry, Morgan's Division. Um, he was a, an older gentleman. He was, in, he was actually in his th- um, 30s when he met a young lady along the raid, um, Catherine Deerwester. And uh, what had happened was um, Mr. Anderson and his cohort were out foraging for food and horses. They came to the Deer Wester farm, and the typical process would be they would knock at the door of the civilian home, see if anybody was there. If somebody answered the door, they would actually bow and raise their hat. Uh, In many cases, they were very polite, um, and they would ask the person who answered, especially if it's a woman, they would be very cordial, and they'd say, where are your horses kept, and may we have some food and drink, please? And um, the civilian woman, or if it was in the case of a man, they would either respond with negative words, or they would give them at least food, um, because in, in Victorian-era society, um, when a person asks for food, even someone you may hate, uh, it was Christian belief that you would give them food and drink. So even with Confederates, Union civilians would readily give up food to them. So that's what what um, Catherine did. She invited them into the house. They gave them food and drink. But um, when they first saw each other at the door, Catherine and John Anderson looked at each other, and they instantly fell in love. And John told his buddy as they were sitting there eating that, I'm smitten with this girl. I'm going to come back and marry her. And we're not going to steal any of the horses because she, her father-in-law. It wouldn't make a very good impression. Her father could become my new father-in-law, so I don't want to make a bad impression with my future (laughs) father-in-law and take his horses. So they left there, and all the information we have proves that story is true, even to the fact that when John Anderson left, he told Catherine that if I survive this war, I'm going to come back and marry you. And he did survive the war, and, and sure enough, in 1866, uh, John Anderson returned to Goshen, Ohio, where the Deerwester Farm's located, and he married Catherine Deerwester. And they're, they That's really lived, cool. lived the rest of their lives together, and they're buried together at uh, a cemetery just outside of Miamiville, Ohio. Weeks before the raid in Ohio, Morgan sent scouts ahead, like he did in Kentucky and Indiana. They knew some of the pitfalls and some of the good areas um, before they ever got there. He had excellent scouts, excellent on horseback. They would blend in with the site. They wouldn't be wearing Confederate uniforms. And they could travel around and get the local information. The information that Morgan was relying on 
is where are we going to cross back into West Virginia and get back to Virginia in the south and get, and get home? They didn't want to stay in Ohio and get captured. The job, as far as they were concerned, had been done. They had caused incredible disruption. The Union Army had turned all their focus on trying to chase them down. But the place they knew to cross, according to all their sources, was a place called Buffington Island. It's an area just outside of Portland, Ohio. There's an actual island in between Ohio and West Virginia on the river. Um, Although the battle would take place mostly on land, not on the island. This was the spot. A place where it was one to two feet deep. You could get all your artillery across. All your men, even if they couldn't swim, you could get them across at Buffington Island Ford. And that's where Morgan's trying to get to. Now, a number of the Unionists, it would seem, also knew about the easy crossing at Buffington Island. But Morgan arrives on the evening of July 18th. He arrives a little late in the day. It's dark. Um, And he sees some men. He sees some men at the crossing, some Union men. We asked David about his decision to whether to cross or to not cross that evening and how that would change the fate of Morgan's raid. Buffington Island Ford was a primary target um, for many reasons. Number one, um, Heinz's spies had sent troops up there in, in June, as early as June of 63, had sent spies into Indian Ohio to find the best crossing places for the Ohio River and also find places of danger like the Cincinnati and Hamilton Dayton Railroad. Um, those were known to Morgan before he even left Tennessee. Um, Buffington Island was a ford that Morgan was well aware of before he even left Tennessee um, to head up to the Cumberland River. And another reason why it was important was because anything north or upstream of Portsmouth, Ohio in the summer would be unnavigable by a steamboat or a gunboat. And that's because before the Ohio River had dams, um, the shoals and sandbars of the Ohio were so bad north or upstream of Portsmouth, Ohio, that ship, ships could not, of any type, low draft sh- boats of any type, could get upstream without hitting one of those sandbars. And the water would only be a couple feet high, right? Yeah, in some cases only a foot. And if uh, you're a typical steamboat um, with with a pretty deep draft, and gunboats definitely fit into that, that realm, they would get stuck and would not be able to get up. Unfortunately for Morgan, though, when he arrived at Buffington Island in the, morning, uh, in the evening of July 18th, a unusual situation confronted him. The primary issue he had was there had been a, an unusual storm in Pennsylvania and, and West Virginia. It's the same storm we learn about when we read about the aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg, that heavy rain that lasted for nearly a week. Well, all that water in that area, Pennsylvania and West Virginia, had to go somewhere. Well, it went into the rivers, the Susquehanna and the Monongahela, which feed into the Ohio River. And essentially what had happened is that all that water came down the Ohio River as what I call the surge, what we call today as a surge. That water raised the level of the river at Buffington Island from roughly two feet all the way up to six feet. And it happened to be on the very night that Morgan arrives at Buffington Island. It's just really bad luck. Bad luck. So that storm, I always figured that you, know, you don't really hear about a lot of rain on his raid. 
So you're saying that storm actually took place more so in in the east and, and affected him. That's correct. So he probably wouldn't even seen that coming. He would never seen that coming. They didn't really understand the idea of the surge. All they understood was that they saw a raging river full of debris and six foot deep that would be extremely dangerous to ford, uh, especially since many men in Morgan's division did not know how to swim. And so it would make a very dangerous crossing. He would lose a lot of men in the process if he tried. And another thing that faced him while he was at there at the ford was it was nighttime and it was dark. And all of a sudden his scouts detected there was a redoubt guarding the ford filled with Union infantry and two artillery pieces. They couldn't make out if the infantry were militia or they were regular troops. If they were regular troops, it would be disastrous to try to take that redoubt at night. If they were militia, it would be a piece of cake because Morgan had no respect for militia. Um, but they couldn't tell. It's too dark. So his scouts said, we don't know. We won't find out until the morning if these men are militia or regular troops. So those two things alone forced Morgan to decide not to cross the Ohio River at night. So, yeah, he makes camp on the evening of July 18th, um, and he obviously, like you said, he has these issues, but those are the only Union troops he sees that night, correct? That is correct. Those so are the only ones. It probably would have been, I mean, based on what happens in the morning, it, he made a mistake by not probably crossing that night or attempting it, at least. Well, um, Basil Duke actually defends Morgan in his decision, and it, yes, we look hindsight-wise, that sure, was a mistake. Sure. Um, however... Uh, Basil Duke really defends Morgan, and so does Johnson in many ways. Um, Adam Rankin Johnson, who was Morgan's other brigade commander, both of them defend Morgan's decision because of the fact they did have a powwow about this. The, he consulted his officers. They understood the dangers of a night crossing with a six-foot, um, you know, six-foot deep raging river. And they understood that they had men and ambulances that they had accumulated over the raid route that were back there, that if they tried to cross those ambulances in that raging river, they could lose them and lose those wounded men. Um, and also all their, all their booty that they were pulling behind them because they had accumulated a lot of booty from Indiana, Ohio. They didn't want to lose that for the morale of their troops. And last but not least was they had to get past these 200 mysterious Union men behind the readout. Turned out to be that they were the Marietta Militia. July 19th, Morgan's men rise early. These guys always got up so early. I, I would have been the worst Civil War soldier for a number of reasons, but the early mornings would have been reason number one. And they get up and they plan the crossing. They plan to fight the men across, across the river and battle across and get into safety to end the raid in Ohio and get home. On July 19th, 19, uh, 1863, and that is the day of the Battle of Buffington Island. What had happened was it was very foggy that morning. Fog had set in during the evening. 
and the fog was so thick that one could not see more than 50 yards. And that fog pervaded into the early morning hours of daylight. And Morgan had the idea that Hobson was behind him, but he didn't know where Henry Judah's provisional brigade of about a thousand men were located. He knew they were around Pomeroy somewhere, but he didn't know if Judah had moved them out during the night. Well, indeed, Judah had moved them out during the night of July 18th and night marched them up uh, the Ohio River, essentially from Racine, Ohio, and took them into the bottom of the Portland Bottoms, which is the southern portion of the Portland Portland, Bottoms. Ohio being where Buffington Island is, right? Correct. And so Judah's men unexpectedly ran into Morgan's uh, men just on the southern end of the battlefield um, near what we call today the Williamson House. And there, uh, in the opening salvo at 5.30 in the morning, in the midst of this fog where they could barely see each other, um, the Confederates and the Union scouts that were leading the brigade of Judah into the battle, um, not knowing where Morgan was, of course, both of them were equally surprised to see each other. And they essentially, they saw each other, were so surprised, they suddenly grabbed their guns and started shooting. Uh, the Confederates had the advantage that they were on the ground. They were marching as infantry, whereas Judah's men were on horseback. So it was quicker for the infantry to pull up their guns and fire. They had the advantage, and many of Judah's men fell. In fact, that's where the majority of the Union casualties of the battle occurred, was right in that first salvo. Men start arriving, Union troops start arriving quickly, and, and worse than that, Union gunboats show up. Yes. Um, the battle turns on Morgan so quickly. Um, how many men are making war on each other here in Portland, Ohio, Buffington Island? And talk about how the battle turns in the Union favor rather quickly. Well, um, let's start with the Confederate side. Um, Morgan had roughly 1,930 men, we, we've calculated, based on uh, reversed mathematics. Uh, he had roughly 1930 men when he arrived on July 18th in the evening. He was able to get 110 men, mostly from the 9th Tennessee Cavalry, over the river before the battle began. They were sent over the river on the night of July 18th and into the morning of July 19th um, as the shock troops, or the ones that would set up the defensive perimeter on the West Virginia side of the ford. That was required. And the way they got across was not by fording. They actually found old skiffs along the riverbank, and they built some rafts. Um, so that's how they got across the river safely. They set up on the opposite side, but they had left their horses behind. They were actually infantrymen on that side. So those poor 110 men were on the opposite side of the river watching the rest of their d- division and their, and their comrades getting cut to pieces. Um, so that left about 1,800 men engaged on the Confederate side for the battle. Uh, on the Union side, there was Hobson's men, and there's uh, roughly, uh, we think about between um, uh, 500 to 1,000 of them. Um, and we have Judah's brigade, uh, which is um, uh, roughly 1,000 men. And then we have 
the U.S. Navy, which has um, three boats in the water there, two gunboats and a dispatch boat, each with about 50 men. Um, and then we have um, infantry troops coming in later on as reserves. That, that accounts for another 1,000. As the battle turns against Morgan, two of the men that were fighting on the Ohio side that day were President Rutherford B. Hayes and future 25th president, William McKinley of Canton, Ohio. Two former presidents fought at the Battle of Buffington Island, Ohio's biggest battlefield. Incredible to think about uh, the 19th and the 25th president both being there that day when Morgan tried to cross at Buffington Island. And ultimately, his crossing failed. Of his 1,800 men, Morgan's actually able to extract 1,100 of them. So he did a good job of extraction. The other 700 would, would mostly be captured. Um, Morgan lost roughly 120 men killed and wounded on the battlefield. Uh, 71 men were captured on the battlefield itself. Uh, the rest would be captured outside of the battlefield in Meigs County. Amongst the 71 who were initially captured on the battlefield, one of them was Colonel Basil Duke, his second in command, which was a very great loss right from the start. However, uh, Colonel Adam Johnson, the commander of the 2nd Brigade, was able to get away with the 1,100. And Colonel Adam Johnson was able to take 330 men across the Ohio River Ford at Reedsville, which is roughly 16 miles upriver from Buffington Island. That same day. Right? That, that same day. And he... All the men would have been successful at crossing the ford there had it not been for uh, Lieutenant Commander Leroy Fitch's gunboats, those two gunboats and the dispatch boat. Um, one of them was the USS Moose, Moose, which was actually Fitch's flag boat. And the other one was the Allegheny Bell, which was a um, gunboat that was fitted from a, um, a regular steamboat. Um, down in Cincinnati and had been given to Leroy Fitch to use by General Burnside. It had been fitted out with um, cotton bales and, and, and such. Those boats had been following the shore, kind of following Morgan this, this whole time, waiting for him to try to cross, and they found him that morning. That Yes, and those two, those, those two gunboats, along with several other gunboats in Leroy Fitch's Mississippi squadron, had been following Morgan up the Ohio River the whole time he was moving across south south part of, of Ohio and into southeast Ohio. Um, that made a huge difference because there were a couple times when Morgan had sent scouts to the Ohio River to see if they could cross. And every time they went down there, there was a Union gunboat within, within range. And they, they hated gunboats. Um, Morgan and his men had contended with them at Brandenburg, Indiana, when they crossed there. They were successful in getting across, but they knew that they would not be successful a second time. And sure enough, Buffington Island proved that. The Battle of Buffington Island is a major defeat for Morgan. Some 750 of his men are captured. 300 or so did escape across the river into West Virginia and ultimately did get back to the south. But Morgan and his men are cut in half, more than half. And his remaining men, as Morgan stayed on land, to stay with his troops. They moved to the Northeast to get away from the gunships and the soldiers, and they escaped. And they begin just a chase. The Union Army, cavalry, everybody is on them. The gunships are patrolling the suddenly swollen Ohio River, um, 
and he can't cross anywhere. Some men do cross about 20 miles north uh, in Belleville into West Virginia. Um, but as they zigzag throughout southeastern Ohio, they get to a town of Nelsonville, Ohio. Um, Nelsonville, just, uh, just northeast of Athens, a town I've been to many times. Um, they have the great Nelsonville Music Festival every year in June. If you're an Ohioan who likes, likes, you know, likes music, it's a smaller festival, about six to 8,000 people. They still get huge bands. You camp out all weekend. I have a lot of friends who go and volunteer and, and perform there. Um, it is a great festival. I, I'd like to get back. I've been a few times. Always a really good time. Um, but Morgan's men get to Nelsonville, and they take all the food they can. they got to be quick about it. They burn a bunch of boats, and they set fire to a bridge, um, a covered bridge, a wooden bridge that you know, goes across the Hocking River, uh, which, which cuts, cuts right through Nelsonville. And still, you know, and still goes right through basically downtown Nelsonville today. The townspeople race out to try and put the fire out. And as the Union men arrive a couple hours later, they'd already, they'd already put together a giant feast in the town square for all the soldiers. Um, one of the great stories uh, of Nelsonville, if you ever go down there, it is one of the stories, you know, that, that they'll tell you about Morgan's raid and how the town came out to help the Union soldiers. We asked Dave about this week or so, it's really eight days almost, that Morgan's Raid continues across southeastern, eastern, and ultimately northeastern Ohio as he tries to avoid the Union Army and tries to somehow find a way to get back home. Right. Well, as we left off with, at Reedsville, for example, with 330 men successfully crossing, including Colonel Adam Johnson, and uh, part of that 330 included George Lightning Ellsworth. Um, the, the other remaining 800 men um, had to find a way across. Well, they tried another ford further up the river. The gunboats caught up and prevented it. They fired in, into the Confederates as they were trying to cross, and that pretty much convinced Morgan he had to turn inland and, and avoid the gunboats. First thing Morgan does, he actually backtracks. He goes back through Rutland, Ohio, which is west of Buffington Island, goes into Gallia County, and tries to cross just north of Gallup Police, a place called Cheshire, not to be con confused with Chester, which actually confused the newspaper reporters. Mm. They heard Chest Cheshire, and they, it was pronounced Cheshire, and they thought it was Chester. And so that really messed up the reporters. But anyway, Morgan... They keep, they keep backtracking. They make their way even through, like, Nelsonville, Ohio, correct? Uh, later on, yeah, after Cheshire failed because, again, they saw a boat full of Union troops coming up, which is not a gunboat, but they, they were fooled into thinking it was a gunboat. Morgan decides, I've had enough of this. I'm not going to repeat Buffington Island again with gunboats firing into my flank. I'm going to go into the interior of Ohio, zigzag my way up through southeastern and eastern Ohio, and try to find a ford where the, the gunboats couldn't reach. Somewhere near, say, Parkersburg or farther north or upstream of that, closer in the, perhaps where West Virginia is, the panhandle of West Virginia up there. The Army finally catches up with Morgan in Salineville, Ohio. This final real battle of Morgan's raid, um, we ask David Mowry about the Battle of Salineville and how it ultimately leads to Morgan's capture in West Point, Ohio, near Lisbon, a town that they also reach. Lisbon, which is, if you look on Google, I'm sorry, which uh, West Point, Ohio, where he ultimately surrenders, 
85 miles south of Cleveland, about 30 miles south of Youngstown. Gives you an idea of just how far north he reached. Weaving through these past cities like Cambridge, um, past Carrollton, getting all the way to northeastern Ohio. It just shows you how incredible this raid was, that a man can basically go from Cincinnati all the way along the river, um, all the way north, and almost, you know, within a day or two ride of getting to Cleveland, uh, the massive industrial city on Lake Erie. We asked him about Selineville and about the, the ultimate surrender that Morgan and his men give at West Point, Ohio, on July 26th, 1863. So at the time Morgan reaches Selineville, we know from a firsthand account of a, of a woman who actually counted the men as they passed by her house, um, Mrs. McIntosh. She counted 475 men in Morgan's division at that point. So we're down from 2,500 in Tennessee when he started. Now we're down to 475. And... Chasing him was a, a known amount of Union cavalry under major um, uh, under a major who decided to attack the rear guard of Morgan's division. Attacked with his roughly um, 250, 270 men, um, and had the better of the fight for a while. Then Morgan turned the tables on Way and got the better of the fight at the end. It was a one-hour, one, one-and-a-half-hour fight. The Battle of Selineville. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it was the second largest fight of the Civil War in Ohio. It's on the list of 384 battles that are recognized by the uh, uh, National Park Service. So um, we have only two of those in the state of Ohio. That's Buffington Island and Selineville. The only problem with the description of the Battle of Selineville is that it resulted in Morgan's capture, which is incorrect. Uh, the Battle of Selineville lasted an hour and a half from 8 to 9.30, roughly. Uh, Morgan lost 100 men, killed, wounded, and captured, mostly captured. And several hours later, it wasn't until 2 p.m. that Morgan officially surrendered. It wasn't to way. It was to a whole new group of men, a new brigade under Major George Rue. 9th Kentucky U.S. Cavalry, and he was the one that's credited for capturing Morgan at 2 p.m. on July 26, 1863. And how many men were captured with him? Uh, 364, officially. Morgan is transported actually all the way down to Cincinnati, and he meets face-to-face with General Burnside, which had to be one of the most awkward meetings of all time. This man who had eluded Burnside for weeks in Kentucky and Indiana and then did a two-week tour of of the state of Ohio. Burnside tells him that he's going to be held as a prisoner of war, and he's sent to the Ohio State Penitentiary in Columbus, Ohio. The state pen, we've mentioned it before, I think during our Wright Brothers episode, Mike Albritton mentioned the state pen. The giant state penitentiary near downtown Columbus, where now the hockey arena, the nationwide arena, the home of my Columbus Blue Jackets sits. The state pen was still around when I was a kid. It wasn't torn down until the late 90s. 
My whole time growing up in Columbus, the pen was only about two miles from my place. Um, I would see it on an almost weekly basis, and the place was terrifying. It was huge, giant walls, almost like a, a huge castle in white. Um, almost, you know, giant gates and bars, and they always did a, a really scary haunted house there. But it held some of the most famous prisoners in Ohio history. None more famous than John Hunt Morgan, who's not only famous for his raid and his incredible career as a con- Confederate general, um, but also he's known around here for his daring escape from the Ohio State pen. My favorite part of this story. We talked to David about how did he escape. Uh, you know, the Alcatraz of the Buckeye State. We asked David about the incredible story of Morgan's escape from the Ohio State pen. So from Cincinnati, Morgan's taken with 68 of his officers to the Ohio State Penitentiary. And um, at the Ohio State Penitentiary, Morgan and those 68 officers are incarcerated as normal prisoners. They are not treated as prisoners of war like in military terms, they were treated as they, as if they were criminals. Um, they're put in cells, um, locked up in those cells for uh, the nighttime and early morning hours. They're only allowed to leave the cells at certain times of the day. Uh, their, their beards are shaved off, which is a sign of very great disrespect, especially for a fellow soldier. Their hair is cut, which is also a sign of great disrespect. Um, again, that's standard for criminals, but not for prisoners of war. For officers. Especially for officers, it's a slap in the face. Uh, so Morgan and his men are treated um, very unkindly by uh, Ward Marion. And, uh, you know, Marion's only following orders here from the U.S. government. He's He would be happy to get Morgan and his men out of his penitentiary as soon as possible because he doesn't ha- he's, he shouldn't be in control of military prisoners. But the U.S. government says you shall keep Morgan and those officers in the Ohio State Penitentiary until we tell you otherwise. Um, And actually works to the benefit of General Morgan because they're able to use that um, difference in location to their advantage by escaping the the prison uh, several months later. Talk about the conditions. I mean, to escape the Ohio Pen. I grew up in Columbus. I remember the Ohio Pen. It was a really scary place, <laughs> but it had really high walls as well. I mean, how did he do it? How did he get out of the Ohio Pen in downtown Columbus? Well, you can thank Captain Thomas Hines for that, um, even though Captain uh, Lorenzo Hockersmith said he came up with the idea, but Hines says, said it first. Essentially, the idea came up either with Hines or Hockersmith to dig through the floor of their cells into a air chamber that was a very good size air chamber. It was about four feet high and six feet wide. And dig in that air chamber, and then from the air chamber, cut through the wall, out into the outer wall, cut through that outer wall, all underground in a tunnel, and then slip out uh, into the prison yard, and from there, climb the outer wall uh, with uh, a rope that they would make out of their bed ticking and a grappling hook they had taken from... Uh, a piece of metal that they had found. Um, all this leads to the belief is how did they get at all these materials without anybody in the prison knowing? Um, it was very interesting. But they dug through their cells into the into the air shaft using two knives they had stolen from the 
prison hospital, uh, made them into files, essentially. And that worked like a charm. It only took their men working together, and there were several men doing this, even though only seven people escaped. Um, pretty much anybody who was in range of the cells in which they were going to dig helped on the, on the situation because there were certain times of the day when all the troops could go out into, the, into a common um, area, and that area was accessible to all the cells in that area, so everybody could take turns working. And it took them from November 4th to November 20th to dig through the walls, the interior walls, and out and left a crust of, uh, of dirt from which they could escape into the prison yard. It took them only that long, 16 days, to do it. Morgan ultimately gets back to the south. He takes, pays a boy to ferry him and another prisoner, a fellow officer across the Ohio River outside of Cincinnati. Gets back to Kentucky, the state he's from, and he's able to work his way all the way back to Dalton, Georgia, to get behind enemy lines. And he's a hero in the south. The fact that not only did he complete this raid, he then got out of the Ohio State pen, slipped the Union's you know, clutches and, and broke out, and he's a rock star in the South. So much so that when he goes to meet with Jefferson Davis and, and with his general Braxton Bragg, they could easily have him brought up for a court-martial. He completely disobeyed orders. He took an entire army away from Bragg, in, crossed the Ohio River into Indiana, took him on a two-week, you know, looting tour of Ohio, but they can't court-martial. In fact, they put him back in charge of another cavalry. Um, now, David tells us that's punishment. You know, they gave him worse soldiers, and Morgan's last raid to Kentucky was not a success. But they can't just, get, they can't just sack him, because he is a hero to those in the South. But like we said, Morgan does end up getting back in the war in 1864, and his house is surrounded once during a raid, and he is shot. He's told to stop by a Union private, and he is shot uh, and killed in 1864. All these stories you know, that we tell you, David Mowry and many other of the people that I work with on this podcast uh, and fellow Ohio historians and, of course, the Ohio History Connection uh, at ohiohistory.org playing a huge role, all, you can learn all about all this stuff on the John Hunt Morgan Heritage Trail. The stories of bravery of Ohioans, the stories of battles. Um, you can go see the Battle of Buffington Island, like we said. But check out the John Hunt Morgan uh, Heritage Trail. You just go to ohiohistory.org, look up Morgan's raid, um, and, let, and we asked David you know, just about the Heritage Trail and how much work went into it. Our guest today, David Mowry, the author, is also the chairman of the Buffington Island Battlefield Preservation Foundation. Uh, their job is a 501c3 to you know, preserve and interpret and, and increase the public awareness of the Battle of Buffington Island. Um, it is a great place to visit. Um, and we, want, we encourage you to go see the only real battlefield in the state of Ohio of the Civil War outside of Portland, Ohio. You could find them at BuffingtonBattlefieldFoundation.org or just look them up on Facebook. Before we finish, there's always a question that I ask. Was Morgan's raid a success? Was it a victory for the North or the South? And I have to say that Morgan accomplished his goal. 
I think he accomplished his goal completely. His goal to distract, you know, the army of the Ohio, Burnside, to terrorize the North, to let them know what it felt like in the South, where soldiers from the North were always going into, into southern cities and taking food and materials. His special operations raid of Ohio from July 13th to July 26th was a success for the Confederate Army. No, Morgan wasn't able to capture Cincinnati or Columbus, um, but he accomplished incredible things that, that you really still um, talk about in these cities today. You go to Jackson, they still have a, a day where they do a reenactment of Morgan's raid in downtown Jackson. You talk to someone in Nelsonville, there's historical markers all over the state commemorating when the Civil War came to Ohio when Ohio took on the Confederacy. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history, there's so many books you need to see, I like reading, and I like reading. Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading It's been a long episode, so much to get to today um, our book recommendation, I'm sure you can guess, David Mowry's Morgan's Great Raid. Uh, the History Press is, is the publisher. Uh, 2013, it's published on the sesquicentennial, the 150th year anniversary of Morgan's Raid in 1863. Uh, it's an awesome book. It's not a very long read. I'm telling you, it's, it's definitely got to go pick it up. Um, he was nice enough to sign my copy. And uh, again, we really thank David for joining us. Go pick that book up on Amazon. Um, and like I said, there's a paperback version. You know, I was able to get through it in just a couple of nights. Um, just such a cool story. Um, and even more union perspective from all those generals and trying to chase down Morgan. And a lot of the stuff that we just couldn't get to today in one show. Uh, so, you know, go check out the Buffington Island Battlefield uh, Foundation Dot, dot org. That's uh, David's 501c3 that he helps run. Uh, you can go see the battlefield in Southeast Ohio and, and see what Morgan's men were looking at when the fog uh, you know, was draped over Buffington Island and over the river uh, that morning on July 18th, 1863. Um, and also, like we said, you can always go to ohiohistory.org to look up the John Hunt Morgan Heritage Trail a huge project, a huge history project here in the state, uh, also leading up to that 150th anniversary. Um, dozens and dozens of markers throughout the state. Uh, a lot of stuff to go look at, so go check that out. Uh, and David and a lot of people uh, put in a lot of work for that. So that'll do it. Uh, we've got an event to let you know about. Um, it's We are the charity beneficiary for Nightlight 614, uh, which is a on the river downtown, Genoa Park, 
uh, and probably the best view of downtown Columbus. There's an, a movie series um, on the water. It's put together by our friend Patrick Klein. It's called Nightlight 614. Uh, we'll give you more info for that. But we are the name beneficiary of that uh, August 24th. It's always Thursday nights. Uh, the August 24th movie down there. We'll be screening The Sandlot, uh, a great movie. I'm a huge baseball fan. Uh, all the best food trucks in Columbus. There's beer and wine vendors. Um, it's an awesome event. It's almost every Thursday. It starts actually in the end of July. You can go to nightlight614.com. Check that out. Um, their season passes are sold out, but it's only 5 bucks or something to show. Um, so try to make it a point to go. It's their, their second year doing it, but they get a ton of people to show up, and it is a really, really, really fun event. So I encourage you to go check that out. And again, Ohio History Podcast will be, uh, will be the beneficiary for that. So that'll do it. Uh, next week, you can look forward to episode 12. We're going to start our interview process next week when I get back from vacation. Um, and we're going to be sitting down with David Steigerwald an OSU history professor here at Ohio State, uh, specializes basically in 20th century American history, uh, seems like an awesome guy, and we're going to be talking about Ohio versus the Nazis. We're going to be looking at the story of the Buckeye Bullet, Jesse Owens, um, and his incredible journey at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin when he crushed Adolf Hitler's dream of, you know, of, an air, of Aryan supremacy. So it's Ohio versus the Nazis, the story of Jesse Owens, one of the greatest Ohioans, um, and we really look forward to bringing that one to you guys. So thank you so much. Go learn about Morgan's Raid. Go read about the Civil War. This stuff is incredible. Um, you know, brother versus brother. The, our country was split into two, and the more you know about it, uh, I think the better off you'll be. So special thanks to David Mowry. We will see you guys for episode 12. We've got three episodes left here in season one. Uh, so we will continue to do these until basically the end of the summer. Um, and we look forward to bringing it to you guys. Take it easy. remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on, it wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. 